0: Before we get started with today's show, I wanted to tell you about another great podcast, Swagoo and Perk, an ESPN podcast led by its namesake host Marcus Spears, that's Swagoo and Kendrick Perkins, with new episodes every Tuesday morning. Spears and Perkins will bring listeners the latest NBA and NFL news, as well as a look inside their lives, career journey, with can't-miss conversations. That's Swagoo and Perk, listen wherever you get your podcasts, and also available on ESPN's YouTube channel. Also, the final episode is here, exclusively on ESPN+, Man in the Arena with Tom Brady. Featuring Tom Brady's three sisters, Giselle Buncheon, Tom Brady Sr., Rob Gronkowski, Michael Strahan, and more. All episodes now streaming on ESPN+, presented by Under Armour. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the right time. My name is Bomani Jones. Thanks for listening wherever you get your podcast. Rate us, review us, give us five stars. You only give us four stars. I'm inclined to believe you are a hater. Also, thank you for watching us on YouTube. Don't forget, call 860-516-4119. Hit our voicemail line. This week's topic, time your mama or daddy had to show up to check your teacher at school. A deviation of last week's topic. Last time your mama and daddy had to show up to check you at school, but it is that time of week we have guests join us. We have David Dennis on the back end of this episode. Check out his book, The Movement Made Us. We'll be talking to him about that. But first, coming to us live from uh, Channel Six, I realized I had not had our guest on previously, which is actually a ridiculous mistake of me to make. But uh, Holly Anderson, what's going on?
1: Good afternoon, gentlemen. How you doing?
0: We are good, and we love to talk about just college football, madness, right? We're not here for X <laughs> yes. and O's. We're here for crazy people because it's a whole sport run by crazy people. And we would say regulated by crazy people, except what is regulation? And that is why we are here. We've talked about all the NIL madness and it has gone exactly as the doomsayers said it would go. I just don't think it's doom. And now the NCAA is like, okay. We're going to put out some guidelines. Retroactive guidelines. (laughs) How do
1: you make retroactive
0: guidelines?
1: Oh, no. The NCAA is going to go after Bagman, (laughs) y'all. For the first time ever.
0: I love, though, that they basically the conclusion that everybody has reached is this would have been a lot cheaper if we had just gone through the bag bid.
1: They know what they're doing. you know. this is I think Patrick Ruby was the one who pointed this out on Twitter. Boosters pooling money to pay. Yeah, here it is. I found it. Boosters pooling money to pay athletes, he points out, is not that dissimilar from how boosters pay athletic departments. Yes. The infrastructure is there. All you had to do was elevate it. But no, (laughs) we did the dumb hard thing. Their dedication to doing the dumbest, hardest thing possible. Man, I, I did promise uh, last week that if anybody had me on the radio, I would just laugh for 11 straight minutes.
0: <laughs> I mean, The thing that I think is most amazing, and I guess this is what the NCAA knew, because it really points out that the problem is, well, two problems. One of them is they just want to keep the kids broke. That's yep. all it comes down to. Because yep. once they were like NIL, I guess this is what it is. This was the only logical conclusion, because not only do boosters pay kids,
1: they love doing it they enjoy yes.
0: every minute of it
1: they love the back slapping they love the relationships they love i mean i went to tennessee there are boosters who genuinely like these kids <laughs> bag men are people too but i i keep coming back i went back and read the very last line of that name image and likeness guidance that dropped i guess now it'll be day before yesterday and Here's the last sentence I've been stuck in my head. It says, "Board members acknowledge that more work must be done and ask the Division One Council to continue exploring additional measures to better ensure name, image, and likeness opportunities. Here we go. Align with NCAA values and protect the well-being of student athletes. Show your work. <laughs> this is all I want from them. What do you mean by NCAA values? NCAA principles, by the way. If you go elsewhere on their Uh, website include like fairness and well-being uh, and physical (laughs) and mental safety Uh, just show your work that's all I'm asking (laughs) say what you actually want explain to me the virtues of amateurism and then show me how you're going to get there because here's the problem that they have right now not only do they have to come up with an entirely new means to an end or a means to an end that actually works they have to make up a new end (laughs) because I don't think they If they know what they want, they sure know they can't say it out loud.
0: Yes. Uh, Did you see the thing that uh, Alan Kenny did for Crimson and Cream Machine about what the real problem with this seems to clearly be? I did not. Basically, the boosters are getting together and the money's not going to the school anymore. The money is going to the players, right? So they are looking at the players as competition for the money that the boosters are doling out. So instead of this turning into a weight room or something else that you got to give a contract out for somebody to buy, you know, to build and all this stuff, it's a reallocation of the resources and they want all the money
1: for themselves. See, that's the part that's actually chilling because that's where these schools get dangerous, right? It's one thing with where the Milo's T deal, you know, comes in and scoops up your quarterback, God bless him, but it's another thing entirely where... I had not thought about it in terms of, oh, somebody's contractor is not going to get to build a waterfall in the locker room next year. These all this money that you've been stacking into water slides. I love a good water slide, but all this money that you've been stacking in water slides that you could have just been giving to them this entire time. Like I, I cited Patrick Ruby a minute ago. He put this on deadspin in 2018 and it's still the best solution, I think any of this, which is the best plan is no plan. Just run <laughs> it like a business. College students already work. College students already work. Just pay them. College students work all the time.
0: Yep. And the <sighs> people have been willing to go to jail to pay them. Therefore, you bring it above board every time they have the argument, "Well, where are we going to find the money?" The same place you find the money for everybody else. The same place you find the money to fund the dental school. Yes. Yes, but see, this is also fun too because this current surge in movement, we all have to be honest, is sponsored by cryptocurrency, right? <laughs> like 2020 came and a lot of people made a lot of money and this is just money to burn. Like I've been reading these stories about the NFT crash situation mm-hmm. and people are looking at me like, oh, funny money. I'm like, no, funny money isn't the story here. The story here is people had so much money to burn And we're bored. And we're just like, okay, well, we'll decide that these things are valuable. And now people aren't that bored anymore. And they're like, yo, that was a silly decision to make. But there was just excess money in the economy. And so they just threw it around for these images because they were like, okay, maybe this will turn into something. I don't know. But all these like billionaires that popped up, like Miami suddenly has all these billionaire boosters. The Crypto.com Grand Prix this past weekend. Yes, it's crypto money. I don't know how long they're going to have that money. But- All that did was just accelerate the idea. They're like, well, what else am I going to do with this money I never thought I was going to have? Like Elon Musk made $100 billion in the last two years off this funny money game, right? So Mm -hmm. they're just like, what can we do with this? It's like when you're in Vegas and you leave the casino after you hit for a lick and ooh, the Louis store right there. Oh, Gucci right there. Don't you want to just blow this money you just won? That's what everybody's doing.
1: It's, I don't have anything to do with laugh.
0: (laughs) What excuses Texas going to have to be sorry now? Because I feel like they should be the Yankees. <laughs> right? All that money. I, did you see Bijan with the uh, Lamborghini deal? I did. Well, how can Texas... By the way, worst idea ever. I can't think of anything dumber than even letting a 20-year-old smell a Lamborghini. Damn sure can't let him drive it. But how are they going to be sorry now?
1: How are most college football players going to fold themselves into and out of a Lamborghini? <laughs> that's low to the ground. Like week eight, he's going to be hurting. <laughs> Driving to the locker room and trying to like fold his hips down into that, that's yes. going to hurt. But... USC has a demonstrated advantage over pit in football, I think, is the problem here. We all yeah. agree. We're in trouble. And I, that's flip. Like, I recognize that that's a surface level argument that like, oh, no, USC might have a demonstrated advantage over pit in football. But the argument we're getting back is not, hey, that's a surface level argument. It's, well, this is broken. What is broken and according to whom and who is we, right? Right. This is another one of those arguments that, that comes back to who is we. <laughs> like when you say college football is broken, from whose perspective are you talking about? You're talking about the fans? Yeah. Are you talking about the players? If the fans disappeared, do the players still, does college football still exist?
0: Right. Well, the other part for me too is, I think it was the Ross Dellinger story in SI where he's just like, oh man, it's going to go back to being like the 80s. Oh, tell me more. Actually, it was much more fun in the 80s than it is now.
1: Was that the story that characterized SMU's recruiting violations as ghastly? Yes.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: You know, it wasn't that far removed in that same state from, you know, Baylor in the 80s. If we want to trot out ghastly in the 20 in the late 20th century, maybe let's go down the road to Waco before we drop that particular adjective.
0: Yes, yes, it is. The next level of SMU was the governor being involved. I do admit that that's a nice little wrinkle on it. But the thing for me with SMU is when you go back and look at the numbers, like thirty forty thousand 40000 like like people were acting like it was the biggest payroll in the world. And I mean, I'm not saying they were getting paid like work study students, but I am saying they weren't getting paid like full professors. Like they weren't really balling on the money that they had there. But man, I think about '80s college football. Like you think about when we were growing up, and they show clips of like 30 years ago college football, 40 years ago, and it looks so boring and stale. They Mm -hmm. show clips of 30 or 40 year old college football, and I'm like, Yo, bring that back! It was snakeskin
1: boots. Bring back the (laughs) snakeskin boots. There is such a disconnect between. This is where I believe there are actually, there are only two camps. And usually with these arguments, there's more than two camps, but there is the camp of people who believes that college football players in snakeskin boots is horrifying. And there's the camp that believes that college football players in snakeskin boots is excellent. In this instance, only you are one or the other. <laughs> I do not understand being in that first camp. I can't put myself in their shoes. And coaches in fur coats. <clears throat> you know, who is really mad right now? Who has no reason to be mm. speaking at people who have no reason to be as coaches. I'm sorry that your job has to change. (laughs) You are well compensated. Mike Bray this week, we've got to stop complaining. This is the world we're in. And the last time I checked, we make pretty good money. So everybody should shut up and adjust. Oh, your job is changing in 2022. Tell me more.
0: (laughs) It just, it just happened. (laughs) It just came around. And I think, I am with the coaches on this. You could transfer and go play somewhere else next year game, or you could just jump out every, like I do think they got to fix that. Like yeah. I, I am for empowering the players, but also recognize everybody's got a job to do. It is untenable in a way that I don't blame them for finding problematic, but the money thing. No, 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 that's completely different. Y'all just out here. hating. Yeah. like what I would like for this to come back to now that people can throw around the money. The coaches don't have to all look like CEOs now. Like we did the thing on game theory about Shashevsky, and like one thing I didn't get a chance to get into is that the worst influence Mike Shashevsky had on basketball is that no college basketball coach is fun anymore. Everybody is a CEO, and I would like we don't have any renegade coach anymore. Like we've got dicks like Urban Meyer, Pearl. Yeah, well, (laughs) come (laughs) on, hate that.
1: About that guy. Oh, sorry. Bruce Pearl's made me love Auburn, which is real backwards. <laughs> it's, just,
0: it's, just, it's so wild. I see why people love him and I ooh, I can't stand him. Although I did once see him, this is the most awkward ESPN moment ever. They did a behind the scenes thing when he was at Tennessee once while they were at the tournament and they were in a you know a hotel room, you know, a hotel conference room or whatever. They had mm-hmm. the buffet spread set up. Bruce Pearl comes up to the table, gets some bacon, looks at the camera and says Free bacon, Jewish dilemma.
1: I love that, ma'am. Knoxville will test the boundaries of I think any of the tribe.
0: Yeah, but I still looked at him. Uh, not him, but at whoever produced that. Like, yeah. who let that through?
1: That was very. <laughs> that's very comfortable of you. Yes, yes, no, yeah. no, no,
0: no, no. You tell that joke on your own time, not, mm-hmm. not a, uh, not over here. But see, he doesn't count as renegade because he's still trying to act like he good. Like he tries to yeah. act like he's a good dude. That's my problem. Where's Switzer? That's who I want here. Somebody, you know it, when he walks in the door, you know what time it is.
1: And Bruce actually represents to me a step forward for Auburn because I've been hating on Auburn since a very specific moment where there was a specific faction of Cam Newton hating. Right. When when all of that was going on with Cam and Cecil. And the problem that I remember having at the time was not that cam was getting paid it's that auburn fans were like oh we would never (laughs) oh he wants to be now and i will stack this right next to them if cam newton had gone to bama bama fans would have handled that differently yes bama (laughs) fans would have been waving dollar bills in the air every time he took the field and my problem with auburn was that they were pretending they were above all that like we hadn't seen their movies this is what i'm saying bruce has moved the needle on those people just a little bit (laughs) i respect him for that
0: that is a great point. I had not thought about that. The righteous indignation about what it would be. Like, no, I minded getting
1: paid. I minded them pretending that, like, oh no, it's a family. Man, <laughs> y'all, have you been to Opelika? <laughs> uh, mm, I love, listen, I'm from a small town in Tennessee. I love y'all. I didn't go to Tennessee by choice. <laughs> is that, ugh, man? It's, I, I don't mind any of these kids getting money. I mind it when the fans pretend that there's just something ethereal. Yes. About this place. The only place where that's true is the Rose Bowl. It is. Did you hate it the first time you went and you were like, oh, God damn it, this is exactly as good. This is exactly as good.
0: I just know it from here. I haven't even been. I just, you know I that? can just see it. And I'm just like, nope, that's
1: legit. It's so irritating because you walk in and there's all these Iowa fans going, like, hey, it's a cathedral. And you walk in, and you're like, God damn it, it's a cathedral. Yes. Well, the thing about the Rose Bowl
0: as a like Southerner Sunbelt person that I feel mm-hmm. like we can never appreciate is what it's like for those big 10 people, yes. right? When they get to, especially back in the day, right? You got to emerge from the thaw and then go. For them, it's the Holy Land. Think of how many people made the trek from the cold ass Midwest out to California because somebody told them it was sunshine and no black people. And then they just get there and they get to bask in the sunlight and everything else.
1: And when my team makes the Sugar Bowl, I'm just thinking about, oh, God, where am I going to park? Yes. Right. Like I don't I don't like New Orleans is wonderful, but I don't I don't hold it in that same like stratospheric level of a clam. Like same thing with my, my team makes the Orange Bowl. I'm like, oh, man, that's a two day drive. Should I fly? Like it's never actually about the game itself. It's just about the irritation involved in getting there.
0: Yeah, the Rose Bowl, it doesn't matter. I watched Utah play in the Rose Bowl this year, and it was an exhilarating experience.
1: I love it when the red teams make the Rose Bowl because it just, it pops, it pops in the decoration. I wonder if the Pasadena Garden Club is like putting their thumb on the scales. Yes. Out there at all. (laughs) If I have any concern in this chaos at all, It's to make sure these kids actually get, you you hit on it a minute ago. It's to make sure these kids actually get the money that's been promised to them. Yes. You know, that they don't get, because with all this money is going to come, you know, another layer of unscrupulous managers and whatnot, seeking to insert another layer of power between them and that money and siphoning a cut and, If these coaches are so concerned about these kids, if the NCAA is so concerned about these kids, work on that. They need to work on the reality of the situation as it is and not on an imaginary situation that they have created. Oh, and, you know, along the way, help them figure out their taxes. Yes. These coaches who are complaining, the ones who demand to be held up as leaders of men. You know, y'all are familiar, most of you, with sizable tax obligations. Why don't you use some of that big-ass offseason and your surrounding institutions of higher learning to make sure these kids emerge from college more financially literate than their peers? And if that's all they emerge from college with, they will be better equipped to be 23 in America than anybody I went to school with Go balls.
0: You know, it's something interesting you mentioned about that because I, a pushback I have on, like, indignation in college football or college sports in general, whenever some kids get in trouble, there's always a lawyer in town because they always got to do a certain level of pro bono work. And there's the football team lawyer, right? And the football team lawyer is normally pretty good. And people get really mad about that. And I'm like, hell no. If you are not going to pay them, the least you can do is line them up for a lawyer when they get in trouble. Like I just <laughs> everybody should get the best lawyer you possibly can get. If they actually did it, then how good the lawyer is, it ain't going to matter but so much, right? Like I'm all about that. By the same token, you're right. They got to get the boys accountants. I am sure they could easily get somebody in the accounting department.
1: Go to the business school. It's going to be somebody's thesis project.
0: Right there. It could be a grad student or whatever it is, but there are people that can help them out. Because you're right. We've worked as freelancers for a while. We all know. They call us all at some point. We've all gotten the call.
1: (laughs) Michael Felder. (laughs) Michael Felder, God bless him, I just did hand in the dirt. And Michael Felder is very open about explaining that he didn't pay taxes for like five years. And he's like, my life was great. And then I tried to buy a house.
0: <laughs> I didn't even get to the buy a house part. I got to the open envelope one day. It was like, oh, oh, so you weren't checking. It's like the first time you don't pay your electric bill the day it's due. And you realize, oh, they don't cut your lights off right now. Worst realization you could ever have.
1: Yep. There's a psychological term for this where, like, you've broken that barrier and now it's okay. Yes. And now you can move the horizon. Just It's like your own little personal Overton window, and now you can move the horizon just a little bit further.
0: Yes. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training, just in time for summer and warmer days. I've been in the gym a little bit trying to get my fitness in check so I can break these skinny allegations I keep getting
1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
0: Now, I'm going to talk about something completely unrelated, but I feel like the people should know about this, which is the time to me and Holly and a few other people almost got arrested. (laughs) Now, you may not think that Holly and I would be in a situation where we could almost get arrested, but it is a true story. Now, were you just happened to be in Miami that weekend or were you there for this event?
1: I was with Grantland. So if we had all gotten scooped up, the press box at that game the next day would have been without, I think, ESPN.com, SB Nation, Grantland, and the Associated Press. We had the AP girl with us, too.
0: Yes. So it (laughs) just so happened. Spencer's in town, Holly's in town, few other people. And it just so happens that Miami Central is playing, I think, Booker T. Washington.
1: It was. And they were like fourth and fifth in the country. One the and time. two. It was oh, one okay. and two. It was that year. OK. Yeah, it was one
0: and two. And so we're thinking we work for major media outlets. We can walk in. Yeah, we will descend upon the stadium. And we called and they were like, yo, we're not giving any more media availability. No big deal. We'll, we'll just show, show up. up. And we just showed up and they were not letting rolling us deep
1: in. with our credentials yes ro- rolling deep and we sent you because you were tall yes and because you were black yes yes we sent you yes. we sent you to smile that one i will never forget that one woman's face because i swear i know it couldn't have been but i swear it was the same woman at the ticket booth who then spotted us on, anyway tell the good part
0: yeah so here's how people needed us they wouldn't let us in fine i was still young enough to have the thought of well, we'll just sneak in. And so we are casing the place and trying to figure it out. And I think there was this long walk around. Did we jump a fence or did we go around a fence?
1: There was a, ch- okay, let me paint a picture. Cause this, this is where, this was where my heelbilly jeans kicked in. Cause I think this next part was my fault. There was a <laughs> chain link fence next to that, that, Went almost up to the edge of a canal. There's a canal that was like right there, and so we there's like six of us, right? We edged along this chain link fence, and at one point there's a hole in the fence. But to get to it, we had to kind of like swing our bodies out over the canal, (laughs) and we're you know we're all technically too old for this, (laughs) and swinging our bodies out over the canal through a hole in the chain link fence, and we get in, and we're strolling, and we're strolling through the edges of the of the property in towards the stadium. And here across the field, like laser beams come the eyes of this same woman who told us we couldn't get it at
0: the front. They brought her over in a buggy, I think. Like somebody had a buggy and she lets us know it ain't happening, dog. And And we sent
1: you again. We sent you again to try and charm her.
0: Didn't work. Didn't work. (laughs) She was impervious. And so we're like, fine. I know the trick. Like once this happens, we just got to (gasps) leave. And so we're walking out, but we've been walking so long. I'm like. There's no way she's still behind us. Because I knew better than to look. Right? I'm like, there's no way she's still behind us. I took one step to the left. I didn't even tell anybody I was going to do it. I took one step to the left to try to get in. And I heard her behind us. Nope. Nope. And then I just turned (laughs) her right back around. And I walked out. Now, I don't know if you know this part of the story. One week later. Oh, I flew to New York for a wedding. A week later. I'm catching the flight back. I sit down. And who is at the gate? The Miami Central football team. Because they had played a game against like Don Bosco or somebody, right. you know, up there in Jersey. And so I'm there and I'm talking to a dude. He's the defensive coordinator. He's a listener. So we're rapping. We're going back and forth. And I'm telling him the story about me getting caught sneaking in. And I look up and who do I see? No. And let me tell you, he still didn't have a sense of humor about it. I don't know. I mean, she, wow. I think she got some job with the athletic department. Either way it goes. She for real.
1: There's this certain class. I don't know if these women exist up north, but there is this certain class of like women of a certain age who have this. It, I think you have to be a nun or a public educator to have this stare this. And my mother's one of these people, which is how I how I come by this knowledge. But they have this flat-eyed shark stare that can just pin you. Yes. It could just pin you to the ground where you are. I would not cross that woman for money.
0: No, no. She couldn't even laugh with me after it, right? Like it's now yeah. being established. I am famous person on television. She didn't care dog she didn't care Mm -mm. at all and i respect her for it
1: and they didn't need to care that stadium was full they didn't need us we were there for ourselves full 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 let
0: me tell you there's a lot of trouble in that stadium we wouldn't really know parts of it but it was gp she was just like no it ain't happening
1: and we were i remember before any of this i forgot until just now before any of this even started we were in the parking lot on twitter being like does anybody have tickets to this game and nobody did no Like we were all between all of us. We had to have like a million Twitter followers (laughs) between the group of people that were there and nobody was coming up with empties. Nope. So
0: we just tried to sneak in and that's (laughs) my my great, like Like people have the last time I got into a fight story. That Mm -hmm. is my wonderful, great last time I tried to sneak into something story. I
1: think that's how we met. It is. I think that was the first time. It is.
0: It is. And we were all on the same program too. Like, so we about to do this. Okay. We about to do this. (laughs) Then we went.
1: I don't think anybody there was from anywhere further north than than Georgia. No. So we, were just, we just kind of all immediately <laughs> zooped into the, okay, where's the hole in the fence?
0: Yeah, it was a very Miami plus just America 2013 moment when you put in the sum total of all things happened. We just want to see Diamond Cook play football. Yeah. That's all it is.
1: Bless his heart.
0: Holly Anderson, check her out. Channel 6. Just check her out. Talking College Football at Holly Anderson on Twitter. Just find her. You know what I'm saying? It's great to have you on here.
1: Thank you, man. It's good to be here. Congrats on the renewal.
0: Thank you. I appreciate it. We'll be back with more shortly. All right, we have got a special guest joining us on The Right Time. Watched Around the Horn last week. You saw my man on there. He had all the chains on Friday. I don't want him to think for a second that I did not peep that he showed up on there with all the chains. You can check out his work at Anscape all over the place. He also talks a lot about wrestling. But today, we're going to talk about his new book, The Movement Made Us, which he wrote with his father, David Dennis Sr. David Dennis Jr. is joining us now. What's going on, man?
2: Nothing much. I won yesterday in Around the Horn. Got my first win. Got my first dub. There we go. Coincidentally on book day, totally uh, <laughs> earned the victory.
0: <laughs> hey, man, who cares if it's earned? It's gotten dog. Right, you know right. what I'm saying? You see that thing back there? That's Emmy. I ain't earned that. I just got it. And right. that's what makes it even better. <laughs> Dave, by the way, also, I have to thank him so much in that he teaches um, at Morehouse, and so somebody might be able to save them boys for themselves. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm trusting David Dennis to give some positive influence when there is none.
2: I did about five years in Morehouse before uh, moving on to this place. And, I, you know, I hopefully hopefully we molded some some fine young men at, at your uh, your favorite uh college institution. Hey, <laughs> yeah, man, they need to the help, man. But no, tell us about the book. So, yeah. So the movement made us is about, you know, my dad's story. 1961 to 64. Uh, he was uh, one of the original freedom riders that came out of Alabama to uh, Jackson. Uh, he was one of the architects of the. Freedom Summer of 64, Best Friends with Mega Evers is a core field secretary uh, in Mississippi. And it's about just these really amazing, crazy stories and these heroes at time, but also it's about our relationship. I write some letters to him about like how that movement time, you know, impacted him and made him as a father and a husband and, and really, you know, shaped my childhood.
0: Now, your father and my father are contemporaries, like in a fairly specific sense, like The wing of the movement that you were discussing is also kind of the similar wing of the movement that my father was involved in. Your father was involved in the sit-ins in Baton Rouge in that time period. My father was also involved there. And so I'm curious about what it was like growing up because I know for me what some of the evolution was of my views and the fact that I grew up in a different space than he did and some of the ideas that I may have had. Like, for example, you went to Davidson College. And that is a world away from where your father went. I grew up going to school with lots of white people, which is a completely different experience than my father had, which meant that I picked up some views and thoughts along the way that were not necessarily in line with the views of things that my father had. Now, of course, I think as I got older, we did a lot of meeting in the middle with me going closer to where he was. But I Mm -hmm. wonder if you had some of a similar experience there as somebody who grew up steeped in the tradition of the movement, but also in what I would term the fairly optimistic, like, 1990s and early 2000s where we really thought we had done
2: something? Yeah, no, there was, like, a little bit of... I think we're kind of good now. You know what I'm saying? Like, there was, like, this thing of, like, yeah, we, good job. Like, we're, let's take this thing somewhere else. And obviously, I think that's part of a lot of just a regular Black man trajectory. Like, you think... You get to this moment where you realize, wait, no, this is not the glorious future that we thought we were going to get, even though you try to do all the things right. You know, I think one of the things that my dad, you know, helped me with at a place like Davidson is I never felt like I was out of my league around a bunch of white folks. I never felt intimidated. I would be the only black person in the room. And I was never afraid to just be like, I can say what I because I come from this tradition of folks who face down worse. So like you looking at me and thinking that I'm going to steal something or whatever that don't impact me because I definitely feel like I'm smarter, as smart as anybody in this room. I could do what y'all do. Because, you know, that's sort of what all them folks in Mississippi taught me. That part you mentioned there is really interesting.
0: I don't think I fully realized this until social media gave us the chance to hear the inner thoughts of lots of people, for better or worse. (laughs) Right. Right. But I didn't realize how many people are truly internalized what these white folks is out there telling them, right? Like, I did not realize how many black people viewed themselves through the eyes of white people, right? Or, like, Mm -hmm. through the things that white people say and this constant need to, like, show white people this or to prove that or all of that stuff. And it's interesting— I like I say I grew up around a lot of white people, but I grew up in this house. You know what I mean. Right. So that you know, so 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 that so that part there was a little different. But something that I find, like you grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, which mm. I mean, let's be honest, it's an apartheid state. Like you you are <laughs> you are immersed in blackness, but that immersion in blackness really often comes, especially if you're from like the educated class. Like the greatest advantage is you are not thinking about yourself through the lens of what somebody else is saying about you. You know, like I think it gives you a certain a resoluteness shall we say, about who you are and what you come from.
2: Yeah, Jackson is an interesting place. Like Jackson obviously is in the middle of Mississippi and there are statewide oppressions that are trying to, you know, bear down in Mississippi. Mississippi is like, a, I mean, we have black mayors forever. You know what I'm saying? Black, everything, everything in Mississippi is, in Jackson is, is extremely black. And my high school was a really interesting experience. It was like the best high school in Jackson and it was the whitest high school But the whitest high school in Jackson is like 3% white. (laughs) So there was like, so we were raised around a bunch of, you know, if you take an AP class, like your class may have like four white kids, right? Which was like the white class, right? But they have a healthy fear (laughs) or understanding that they say the wrong thing. It goes left and nobody in this building is going to save you from what you do. So like these white kids who I went to school with, they grew up and have this like really fascinating appreciation of black folks and most of them stayed that way like you know a lot of folks when they get older they go into their own mm-hmm. thing and they're like well i kind of like you know this power that this country has given me but they they sort of have a sensitivity to that and so that also taught me that like it's not about you know me being you know less of anything it's just like i'm in an environment where i'm now surrounded by more white folks than before but i know back when white folks were surrounded by black folks it was if they were in the same sort of boat I would love to
0: hear them white folks you went to high school with when they go home and complain about them black folks at school. Right. Like like how we become like 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 somehow we we act like we the only ones that come home and complain. Like, what's going on? <laughs> Man, these white folks at work driving me crazy. Right. right. I would love to hear some of the stuff that then maybe ultimately come back and be like, Oh yeah, I can see how that might be a little bit annoying. You're absolutely right, right. correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a little loud over here in the corner. You're right. Yeah, yeah, I got you. I got you.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's the thing, but like I think. You know, I, I through my career though, I learned that, you know, when I started, I was like, I want to write and like convince white people of stuff. You know what I'm saying? I want to like make like convince white people that racism is bad and it'll change them, you <laughs> know, change this mm-hmm. idea. And I learned about one article in that that's not how it works. And so it was like, I'm just gonna write to and for people who look like me who are are again the only black folks in the rooms they can feel seen. And that's been such a better way to, to go about things.
0: Yeah, so it's interesting you say that. Because I do still think I can change some people's minds. And I think I have. Not everybody necessarily. November of 2016 made me change my approach in many ways. Because mm. I was like, oh, I don't have to explain anything to you. Like, mm. it's right here directly in front of you. And oh, man, look at what they jumped on. It was right. like, oh, 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 I need to reconfigure. Now, I want to ask you about the book and talking to your father about those stories. And I'm curious for you, because I, it seems to me, and you correct me if I'm wrong, a difference between the two of us though our experiences are somewhat similar is I didn't do enough talking with my parents as I was growing up about specifics mm. of that movement, right? Like the lessons and the thought process, you know, and, you know, the, the moral and intellectual basis I got, I didn't really talk that much about the events per mm. se, which I don't think is terribly uncommon because I think a lot of people, there's a measure of exhaustion that right. came after dealing with all of that. So I'm curious for you in doing the book and talking to your father, Like, what was the most interesting thing you came across from him that you didn't know before you started working on this book?
2: Yeah. So, I I mean, a lot of the stories, I don't think I asked a ton of those questions coming up either. It was mostly just sitting around the table when the movement folks get together and they talk shop. Those are when the stories come out. And those are when the things that dad sort of, when he re-remembers things, things like that. So it was, and those stories always fascinated me. So coming back to the book, I would come back. So like, I remember when I was eight and you told me this story, like, can we like, what's the actual details of that information? Like I had, you know, an understanding of a bunch of episodic events. Right. But, you know, they had to come in piece together. I think the thing that I learned, well, two things. One thing that I learned, but I guess you knew, but like you don't really realize how young your parents were at this time. You know what I'm saying? Like when your parents talk about being kids, you always imagine them being old forever, you know, but like that was 20. The framework of american politics was reshaped by a bunch of 20 year olds (laughs) you know like 20 25 year olds in the 60s and it was just crazy how young they were and then the other thing was like putting the chronology together right like i was worried about writing a boring book of like dad doesn't march and then like he spends three months like you know typing things and like organizing and doing that stuff but like all this stuff happened concurrently like at the same time like Fannie Lou Hamer was tortured in jail and Megar Evers was killed like in the same week, you know what I'm saying? And so like the fact that all these all these things piled on at the same time and that he was just sort of going from one, you know, crazy event to another, you know, overlapping was the thing that really struck me.
0: Well, the other thing, too, I'm curious if you're able to get into this in the book them dudes are fun yeah, like that yeah, collection yeah, yeah. of dudes is hilarious yeah. and i want to yeah. say let me be careful men and women because as I right. like, as you mentioned Fan lou hammer for example maybe one of the more underrated figures in american history at mm. this point in part because of gender but they are like
2: fun laughing joking drinking kicking and dance kind of people you know I mean, I wanted to show that they were kids, like that they do things that kids do. That they, you know, like my dad, his story, <laughs> which you know uh, I put in there that other folks are uh, think that it's, you know, he's sort of minimizing his, you know, heroics here. Is that he got drunk and said, "I'm going to join these freedom rides." Like he <laughs> got, like he drank too much and was like they, and they gave him liquor on purpose to coax him to get on the freedom ride. You know what I'm saying? Like that's what they do. And there are there's like a, cha- like a chapter on pranks, like pranks that they would sort of just pull on each other because they were just in, like, in these crazy situations and trying to laugh through it. And so they would just, you know, somebody would be asleep and you'd put the whipped cream on the hand, just like, you know, we would do and, and all that stuff. Like they were a lot of fun because, again, like they were kids living together, doing all this stuff in this crazy time.
0: Now, I think you're also at a similar point with me in that your parents are getting older now, right? Mm-hmm. Like we recognize the preciousness of it. But your father was a participant in this movement and most people your age, it's their grandfathers, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a bit like when you have these older parents, right? Like it's one generation up, but it is interesting because we're now at the point where that movement to us is kind of like, what World War II was for people like 20 years ago. And you used to see all kinds of TV stuff because the boomers did a great job of commemorating their successes, right? Mm -hmm. So all these TV shows about World War II and all of that, they kept it in the consciousness. But you notice now those things are fading out. Like Mm -hmm. you don't see commemorations of history as part of like regular programming in the way that they used to be. But there's a long-term consequence of that, I believe, which is now how does this next generation pick up on that? Like I think about in sports where it used to be every year on the anniversary of Ali Frazier. They do Mm -mm. some big thing. And that's why I know about Ali Frazier, like that particular fight. I don't know how people know that now. So like when you did this, did you have any particular thought or concern to the need or the importance of somebody really our age and even younger? Getting this message and this story from this time from somebody more contemporary than them to kind of keep this thing alive.
2: Yeah, that—that's the hope. Is that like you know, a lot of this started in, when I was in high school. You know, like the idea of this book and, and putting it come together. And so my hope is that this is a book that like kids are reading at some point. You know, and I tell folks they get so frustrated about you know why the kids don't know that much about the '60s, and I'm like, when I saw Eyes in the Prize. It was, you know, 1992 when I saw Eyes in the Prize and Martin Luther King had been, you know, dead for 25 years. Right. Tupac was killed 25 years ago for these kids. You know what I'm saying? Like they need like people. It's hard to frame exactly how long that was for these folks. Like when I was a kid, I didn't know much about the 20s, you know. And so I think it does feel like ancient history. The, the thing that's sad, sadly makes it feel more, you know, less like that is that, You know, I wrote this in my dad's voice in first person, and you can't tell which one of us is feeling what about the state of race in America, you know, and I think there is a timelessness, uh, you know, a great timelessness to what black perseverance can do, but like a very sad timelessness to the fact of what, you know, we have had to fight for all these decades. So my hope is that, you know, that part of and the humanism in the book is something that will register for kids.
0: Did your father have any points where he looked around and wondered like, damn, how much did we actually do? Because I can imagine that some of that could be, you know, some things as they happen in the Trump era and everything Mm -hmm.
2: had to be somewhat disheartening to consider. That was one of the central questions that I was asking him, you know, at the very beginning was like, what, you know, how do you feel about this? You know, and of course, unfortunately, like a lot of this book was written in 2020, right after George Floyd, you know, and of course, obviously, yeah, while Trump is president and those two things. Also, there was an insurrection and like a, a like a national like race riot in the televised race riot. And you know, it, it's easy to sort of look at that and be like, Yeah, we didn't do enough. But I think I was sort of couching the question. I think an easier way for him to answer was me asking him, like, did you think that I would still be dealing with it? You know what I'm saying? Like when you thought about having kids or grandchildren and great-grandchildren did you think this would still be happening and his answer was very clearly no there was no he didn't think there was any chance we'd be still doing this
0: yeah but i tell you this though the one thing i think about especially mississippi in particular like the south you could say it but we can't no matter what they could never say they didn't do nothing right, right, like,
1: right,
2: right. <laughs> like
0: it is a, i do not worry about getting yoked up and mm. choked up right mm-hmm. maybe i should i don't know but i don't actually worry about that sort of thing like i always think with that generation, while there may be some of those worries, there's no point at which you
2: can't just stop and look and be like, damn, they did it though, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that like I wanted to illuminate. That was, you know, illuminating for me was that like, this was a war. If I told you there were like bombings and spies and assassins and, you know, like all of this crazy stuff that the government was doing on a bunch of like college kids and sharecroppers and teachers and folks who like had, pistols and shotguns and what they did in spite of that, like that is one of the most unlikely victories that you can think of in in American history that folks don't frame it that way. But, you know, a lot of these wars have been fought to preserve democracy, or, or so I've been told. And these folks fought a war in Mississippi and Louisiana and all these places to preserve democracy. And they were greatly outnumbered and outarmed in many ways. They absolutely did win. Hold on. They did it to create, create yeah, democracy. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, I, I
0: tell people this a lot. I've mentioned this on the show before, but it was one of the more eye-opening experiences I had in one of my graduate courses. It was a comparative political institutions course. Mm. And we were doing something. It was some index that measured levels of democracy, like negative mm. 10 to 10. Very democratic at 10 negative 10 so like negative 10 is like mm. the authoritarian states positive 10 is like the scandinavian ones right because right, right. it's, it's all just them so they can all be peaceful <laughs> and free and like right. talk things out but one thing that study made i'll never forget is the united states did not truly achieve democracy until 1968 like mm-hmm. you can't or 65 voting rights act 65 mm. you can't say that this was a democracy with what the state of affairs was in the south or with the fact that women couldn't vote for x amount of time or whatever right. it was so Democracy, as much as American people love to extol the virtues of it, this has only been a democracy
2: for 50 years in change. You know the numbers are staggering. You know, like, and I don't have, I don't know the exact, but it was like few hundred thousand black folks basically were voting around Reconstruction, and it was down to like two thousand by like that amount of erasure of votes is, you know, that that takes some tremendous effort and some tremendous like you know, hatred to accomplish that. But yeah, I totally agree. Like they created democracy in a place where there absolutely was none. And not only that there was none, there was a, like documents that were enforcing the fact that we don't want democracy, like like not having democracy was the law of the land written yeah. into all of these constitution and laws. All right. So
0: think about this, right? Like all these cities that people talk about as being like these bastions of liberalism Now, what it really is is they all vote blue because you got enough people of color to throw the numbers off, right? Mm -hmm. Like the more liberal people are going to be more likely to live around those people of color, but that's what really tips the numbers. Mm. Mississippi, I think now is somewhere between thirty-six and thirty-eight percent black and vote red all the time. Mm. How the hell is that possible? You know what I'm saying? Like when you really stop, like that's the part that gets lost when they talk about all these red states. Stop and think about how that's possible with the proportion of blackness in all of those places, or Texas, for example, black and brown. Like what you have to do to maintain that state of affair.
2: Yeah. I mean, and and folks look at it, you know, like you hear people like, well, the best thing to do is we'll just stop sending funds to red states or whatever, you know, like that'll teach them. And it's like, that's not how it works. (laughs) Like that's going to only hurt the people who are, you know, who are already being hurt in these places. Like these folks, like this is, you know, gerrymander. This is like, these are like conscious decisions, whatever they're doing or trying to do in Mississippi, they're trying to do around the rest of the country, you know? And what so you're like they're studying Mississippi. Like we should be studying the resistance movement because every like black person who votes in Mississippi is some like borderline miracle that you are able to vote and be black in Mississippi.
0: Now I always say the only reason that Colorado isn't like Mississippi, Colorado ain't 38% black. Right. You take any state, any place in this country, and you give it the population demographics of Mississippi, it will turn into Mississippi. Immediately, right? Mm-hmm. Like those people. It's always interesting talking about this stuff with black people from Mississippi because everybody wants to love their home, which mm-hmm. requires having to ride, like trying to find a way to ride from Mississippi, right. which is not really the easiest thing in the uh. world to do. But I do think they have a point. Like it ain't that much different at its essence. It's just different in the changes of the
2: variable. When I went to North Carolina, people were doing all that. Like I'm. Not, I, how can you? I would never go to Mississippi. Never visit Mississippi. And I'm like. We're. I'm in North Carolina, dude. The function of that is to look in Mississippi and for like a lot of these folks to feel good and say, well, I'm, gl- I'm glad I'm at least not Mississippi. And with the fact that they're not, the word they're missing is yet. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like that's, that's the word because like, they want to do this all over the place, what they're doing to and against black folks. But you really should be looking about what black folks are doing in Mississippi that it is not a worse place than it is. You know what I'm saying? Like that's like the fundamental blueprints Of resistance movements in this country for the last however many decades, like you can trace that back to Mississippi. And I think that you could probably show some gratitude or like gratitude and things by like not just discarding Mississippi as this lost land and maybe trying to pump some of that back into the state. That
0: is David Dennis. Check out his new book, The Movement Made Us, written with his father, David Dennis Sr. And I have told you this personally, I'm gonna tell you this here. This is a noteworthy, amazing accomplishment that you have done this book, that you did the work to get it finished, that you are sharing this story and that you have the opportunity now to allow the world to take the message that you get. And look, if only one person gets something out of it, man, that matters. And that's something that a lot of people can't do. Like you talk about, you know, realizing you ain't going to change their minds. You're going to change a few more than you realize, man. Congratulations to you for this. And I hope that you and your people can enjoy this all the way. And I just can't imagine how proud your daddy is right now. I bet he all up on Facebook gonna be posting i I know how this goes he gonna be posting every review every Um, interview this will be on his facebook page shout out to you mr dennis senior i'm hollering at you right now because i know you about to listen (laughs)
2: All right, my dude, thank you so much, man. Congratulations to you. And of course, man, you know, you, you, you wanted the one of the blueprints for how we do this writing thing and all that stuff. And so I'm trying to, as long as you're happy with it too, you know, I'm good. I'm good with it. So.
0: Look, man, I ain't got it in me to write a book right now. You already jumped <laughs> me in the line. So I salute you, man. So thank you. That is David Dennis. And ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us here on the right time. We do this three times a week. Also, thanks to Holly Anderson for joining us in the first half. Gabe Bassane and Dave Presley handling everything behind the scenes. Thank you, gentlemen. Also, thank you guys for watching on YouTube. Also, remember, call 860 516 We want your voicemails about the time your parents had to come to school to check the teacher because the teacher was tripping. Rate us, review us, give us five stars. You only give us four stars. I'm inclined to believe you are a hater, and we'll talk to you guys in a couple of days. Take it easy.